the classic, Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America, while perhaps among the best known, is just one of many studies written by foreigners about the United States. Dickens, Kipling, and Jean-Paul Sartre also made important contributions to this body of literature, although theirs often were more scathing. In fact, let me just read you something that Rudyard Kipling wrote about Chicago. He said, having seen it, I urgently desire never to see it again. It is inhabited by savages. Its air is dirt. Well, I can promise you that our guest, Dr. Jorge Castaneda, has a much more favorable view of the United States. Drawing on over five decades of close familiarity with the United States, he is one of Mexico's most distinguished diplomats and scholars. And he adds a keen, a very keen perspective to what you will find, I think, to be a thought-provoking discussion of America through foreign eyes. This is his latest book, which was published just last month. Hi, everyone. I'm Jim Falk, President of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. And first and foremost, let me remind you that you can purchase a copy of America Through Foreign Eyes from Dallas's independent bookseller, Interabang Books. And if you go to interabangbooks.com, type in DFW World, you'll get 10% off not just on America Through Foreign Eyes, but on any books that happen to be in your shopping cart. Just remember, though, that 10% discount is only for online purchases. I want to give special recognition to the Billingsley Company. They are the patron, if you wish, of our Global Forum program. Thank you so much, Billingsley Company, for everything you do for the World Affairs Council. Today's program sponsor is the law firm of Haynes & Boone LLP. And additional financial support has also been provided by Mercado 369. And we're very grateful to our promotional partners, the Association of Mexican Entrepreneurs, the SMU Tower Center, and SMU Mission Foods Texas Mexico Center. Now, I hope you'll have many questions. And as you know, who those of you who watch our program, I like to weave your questions in throughout the discussion. So as soon as a question pops into your head, go ahead and enter it into the Q&A box. And now it is my pleasure to introduce and welcome one of my many bosses at the World Affairs Council. Larry Pascal is a director of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, and he's a partner and co-chair of the international practice at, you guessed it, Haynes and Boone. Larry, please introduce our guest. Thank you, Jim, and in particular, thanks for the opportunity for Haynes and Boone to be a part of, of today's great program. I am indeed excited to introduce today Dr. Jorge Castaneda, one of the leading Latin American scholars and thought leaders of our time. Dr. Castaneda served as Mexico's foreign minister from 2000 to 2003 under President Vicente Fox. He has held teaching positions at Mexico's National Autonomous University, University of California at Berkeley, and New York University, where he has taught since 1997. Previously, Dr. Castaneda was a senior associate at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and was a John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation Research and Writing Grant recipient as well. He is a New York Times contributing opinion writer and a columnist for the Mexican newspaper El Financiero and the Spanish newspaper El País. A prolific author, Dr. Castaneda has published over 25 books in English and Spanish. Having lived and worked in both the United States and Mexico, Dr. Castaneda is no stranger to the cultural and political climate, climates that surround both nations. 
In his latest work, America Through Foreign Eyes, published by Oxford University Press, he provides a unique perspective on the United States and its role on the global stage. With that impressive background covered, I now want to formally extend a Texas-sized welcome and bienvenido to Dr. Castaneda. I look forward to hearing his thoughts on this important topic. I now turn it back over to you, Jim. Thanks so much, Larry, and again, thanks to you and your firm for supporting it. Hello there, Dr. Castaneda. Thanks for being with us. Hi, Jim. It's great to be here. Thanks, Larry, and a Texas-sized abrazo for you, too. Well, you know, Larry, Larry did a, a great job with your introduction, but I think it'd be helpful for our audience to get even a, a, a better sense of your experience with the United States. Uh, when did you first come to this country? How did that come about? And, and just give us a little bit of, you know, since uh, we have a lawyer there, establish your bona fides about what gives you the right to talk about my country. Well, I, uh, I guess the first... The earliest memory I have of the United States was when I was uh, six. My parents were both working at the United Nations in New York. And first we lived in Fort Lee, New Jersey, where I went to public school number one for a year. Then we moved to Manhattan, where I also went to school for a year and a half. So that's the earliest memory. I guess that goes back now about 60 years. Uh, and uh, subsequently, I went to college in the United States. Um, and after I went to college there, I began to teach sporadically as a visiting professor in many U.S. universities, although I did spend two years in Washington, D.C. at the Carnegie Endowment. And ever since then, I have been constantly lecturing, writing, uh, speaking, uh, and teaching at American universities, though mainly at NYU since 1997. So I do go back a, a while, uh, a little bit more than half a century, Jim. And your dad was foreign minister as well, right? He was foreign minister in the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, he also had a lot of dealings, obviously, with the United States for Mexico. When you have that job, basically, you, you know, you spend 70, 80% of your time dealing with the American authorities. That, that, that's the job, basically. So why does it matter about what foreigners think about the United States? Why should we care? Well, I think Americans have always have been of two minds about what foreigners think. If you go back to Tocqueville in the 1830s, uh, Jim, what is remarkable is that it took a while but after a while, maybe 15 years or so, uh, Tocqueville's Democracy in America became a very important book in the United States. It immediately was a big hit in France, of course, because he was a very well-known figure and the topic was of great interest to the French, but it became very important in the United States. So that means that for a long time now, almost 200 years, Americans have been sort of open to what people think about them abroad. On the other hand, you can count on the fingers maybe of both hands the number of import of books that have been written by foreigners on the United States that have had an impact in the United States. Tocqueville, maybe Dickens, Gunnar Myrdal, uh, um, the American, an American dilemma on race in the 1940s, um, you know, you can find five or six more 
But so Americans aren't always that interested. It's a love-hate relationship a, a little bit. Why does it matter today? I think, Jim, because the United States is more uh, sensitive or vulnerable or dependent, whichever term you prefer, to what happens in the world. And perhaps the best example we have right now as we speak is the pandemic, which apparently came to the United States, that seems to be true, from abroad, perhaps from China, perhaps elsewhere, but from abroad, and has affected the United States enormously, like every other country in the world. Uh, this is some, the economic contraction that the U.S. is going through, or recession or depression, whatever you'd like to call it, is also coming from abroad to a large extent and affecting the United States. So today, more than ever, the United States is subject to the same kind of influence, of pressure, of benefits and losses through its interaction with the rest of the world. In that sense, the United States has become a whole lot like the rest of the world. And I think it's important to point out that you wrote this book really as a friend of the United States. Well, I consider myself one for many, many reasons for the ones I already uh, laid out, Jim, the fact that uh, my son was born uh, in the United States in Montgomery County in Maryland, uh, and that um, I think that most of the criticisms, not all, many of the criticisms that foreigners have uh, addressed at the United States over the last 150 or 200 or so years uh, have some validity, some worth, but many of them are distorted, unfair, or have explanations which uh, the object of the criticism has an explanation which I think is worth going into. So this is certainly not a critical book, although there are a couple of chapters which I think are kind of hard hitting as one reviewer said at some point. Uh, but I think it's difficult not to be hard hitting uh, on issues, for example, uh, like race or like gun control or like the death penalty, but that's just you know one person's opinion. Right. So when did you decide to, to write this book and how long did it take you to do so? Well, I've been wanting to write this for a very long time, but somehow I hadn't been able to uh, both uh, find the time myself and find the publisher that I would be comfortable with. And when uh, um, Oxford University Press accepted to do this back in 2015, well, I began to work slowly. And then the last uh, two years, I got three years, I worked much more intensely on it. So I must have devoted a good couple of, almost three years exclusively almost to this, uh, to this book, uh, which I enjoyed writing perhaps more than other books because I was really learning a lot uh, myself in writing the book. Some books, you know, Jim, you write about stuff you already know uh, or you think you know a whole lot about. You may be wrong, but you think you do. And so it's fun, it's interesting, but it's not terribly challenging. In this case, this was very challenging for me. And I'm glad you mentioned that because one of the things, and I want our viewers to really uh, appreciate this, is I learned so much beyond what you see in the headlines. I mean, we're all talking about the growing inequality that you're seeing in the United States, but you really research how the middle class has changed, uh, especially in the last, what, two decades? And I wonder if you might expand on that and, and, and what you learned through your research, because that, that really is a, a key part of your analysis. 
it, it really is a little bit the center of what I try to, to, to lay out, Jim. The, the fact, you know, the United States was in a sense born as a middle-class society with the exception, of course, of everyone who was left out, Native Americans, African Americans, the enslaved peoples, uh, women, um, then later on different sects, uh, scores of immigrants, then the Latino population from the mid 19th century onward, etc. But for those who were not left out, this was a middle class society from the outset and then, and then continued to be so uh, through the, towards the end of the 20th century, again, with those huge exceptions, which were never minor, to put it uh, very mildly. But as of 1980, more or less, the United States starts becoming less and less of that middle-class society, even among those who are included in it, let alone those who continue to be excluded from it. And that has generated the situation we are living in today, I think, which is that the United States was able to do without a proper welfare state for a long period of time because it was this middle class society with the exception of those left out. But from the 1980s onward, it no longer is that middle class society. And so it needs that welfare state, which it doesn't have. And all of a sudden today, for example, with the pandemic, everybody's realizing how necessary that welfare state is in a country which no longer is that middle class society. Well, I want to spend more time about what you mean by a modern welfare state and how it might be applied in the United States. But let's go back to that early 1980s, the beginning of the Reagan revolution. Many factors had to contribute to the shrinking middle class, but what are, say, like the top two or three that led to this? Well, inequality began to rise from around 1980 onward. A number of American scholars, foreign scholars, Thomas Piketty from France, among others, have gone into a lot of the data. And any way you look at it, from 1980, the gap between rich and poor in the United States, the uh, so-called Gini coefficient, the amount of wealth or income concentrated by the top 1% and by the bottom 50%, all begin either to shrink or to grow, contributing to this growing inequality. Why? First of all, because of the huge budget cutbacks that began to be established by the Reagan administration in 1981. If you start cutting back on a series of social programs and start spending more on military expenditures, well, unless you have some kind of countervailing forces, Dallas Baptist University is a global, Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a Master's in International Studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher, at leeb at dbu.edu. You are going, inequality is going to go up. It's going to rise inevitably. And it did. 
and it continued to rise through the 1990s, perhaps at a slightly lower rate, but continued to do so because the Clinton administration continued with many of the Reagan policies, regardless of what President Clinton's uh, friends and admirers, I'm one of them, uh, continued to think about him and his administration. Uh, they continued to have welfare cutbacks, uh, food stamp cutbacks, etc. A series of things that were cut back on. Wages began to stagnate because of the way the Reagan administration was able to weaken labor unions in the United States, starting with the air traffic controller strike that he broke early on in his administration. So wages began to stagnate. And a series of other cuts made it so that uh, you just ended up having a society which was becoming more unequal, but which was not compensating for that inequality the way, let's say, the Canadians or the Europeans or the Japanese or the Australians do. It's not that you didn't have many forces, globalization, et cetera, uh, uh, pushing towards greater inequality in Europe or in Canada or elsewhere, but they had uh, counterweights. They had uh, obstacles. They had breaks on that trend. The United States didn't. And so inequality rose enormously to the, to the extent that today, Jim, the United States, which traditionally was a much more equal society, even after slavery, even after slavery, this is an important point, was a much more equal society than those of Western Europe. Today, the United States is a much more unequal society than practically every country in Western Europe. And when you talk about equality, are you talking just about income, access to education, or does it really come down to, will my children have a better life than I've had? It's a little bit all of, all of the above. It's income, it's wealth, which has now become a topic of much more greater importance as so many American scholars have, uh, I wouldn't say discovered, but emphasized the fact that differences in wealth, for example, between white and black Americans are enormous, even more so than in differences in income because of the difficulties for the African-American population to have acquired homes, uh, which is the main asset, the main source of wealth that Americans have, that most Americans have. Uh, the intergenerational well, transfer of wealth. The intergenerational transfer of wealth has also come down. So a lot of American scholars or scholars in American universities who have shown how Americans today not only are not as well off as their children were uh, and will be better off than their children will be, but they also think so, which is kind of depressing because perhaps the, the leitmotif of, American, of Americanness was this notion that your children will be better off than you are and that they were better off. It was a fact. Well, we don't have many questions yet, but I know how to, to, how to get some, and that is to ask you to talk about what you mean about a modern welfare state. I watched a bit of the convention last night, the RNC convention, and it seems like what you're talking about, that's going to lead to socialism, if not communism. Defend it. What do you mean by modern welfare state? I guess it would be very difficult to defend it in the view of what uh, many people were saying last night. Conversely, uh, it's rather easy to defend today if one listened to the Democratic Convention last week and also if one uh, followed the debates 
during the primary season among the Democratic candidates. There's been a huge shift to the left of center, at least within the Democratic Party, and apparently in public opinion in general, according to most polls, in the sense that more and more Americans consider that some of the things that they have lacked for many, many years, and that, for example, the Europeans have always had, today are not only necessary, but desirable. Universal health care, call it uh, Medicare for all, like Bernie Sanders does, or call it single payer, or call it Obamacare plus, like uh, Vice President Biden, I think, prefers to call it. Whichever you choose, things like universal health care, things like a higher minimum wage, things like higher unemployment benefits, things like higher social security for people, things like free public higher education, universal childcare, et cetera. All of these issues, which Americans and people undoubtedly at the Republican convention last night uh, think are socialism or communism, uh, a lot of Americans, a majority today, apparently, according to the polls, think that they are necessary and desirable. Uh, I think that's a little bit what I refer to as a new welfare state. The United States hasn't had this, whereas Canada, Western Europe, Japan has had most of these things now for 50, 60 years, in some cases, 100 years. So we have a, a question, and, and clearly we were going to talk about this, and that's drugs and immigration. And this comes from Steve, and let me just summarize his, his thoughts. The international drug trade continues to be a major problem in U.S.-Mexico relations due to the demand from the U.S. and the aggressive cartels in Mexico that threaten the very sovereignty of the country. So what are your thoughts on that? But as you talk about this, you, 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 I, I thought it was interesting that you paired your discussion of drugs with immigration, and you talked about the hypocrisy as well as the pragmatism. So I'll, I'll leave it in your good hands now to, to answer Steve's question. Well, on drugs, the point I, I try to make uh, Jim, is that the United States has traditionally, going back at least to the 1970s, the early 70s and Richard Nixon, but in some cases even well beyond that, had a very pragmatic but also hypocritical view on drugs. Why pragmatic? Well, because the United States has sent troops to many parts of the world, to Bolivia, to a lesser extent to Mexico, to Guatemala and Honduras right now, other places, to stop drug, drug production, the supply side. But I don't recall ever having seen the National Guard or American troops enter the ghettos of Chicago or Los Angeles or other cities, inner cities, uh, to stop Americans from consuming drugs in those parts of the country, even though that consumption is illegal. I know the United States pressures governments all across the world enormously to stop or diminish drug production in their countries, like Mexico, of course, but it does not do at all do the same thing, really, in any part of the United States. For example, uh, inv uh, privacy invasion, invading, testing all over. I often ask my students at NYU, what would your parents say if the proctors or NYU police, whatever you want to call them, would uh, one day just come knocking at your door and enter without a warrant and without warning to search for drugs in your dorm room. Um, some say my parents would be very happy, but others say uh, my parents would be very upset. Uh, well, this is a little bit the sense of 
of hypocrisy that I mentioned. The United States wants others to stop drug production, but it is not willing, let's say, to put American troops on the border with Mexico in order to, in order to um, stop drugs from entering. It wants Mexico to put Mexican troops on the Mexican side of the border to stop drugs from leaving Mexico, but it doesn't want to put American troops on the American side of the border to stop drugs from entering the United States. Well, this is a little bit what I refer to as hypocrisy, but also pragmatism. Why? Because the United States knows, and one administration after another after another have known this, that all you can do with the drug issue is administer it, is to manage it. There is no possibility of eradicating drug consumption in the United States. The United States, Americans tried to do that with alcohol in, during prohibition, and it was a universally considered disaster. So this is a little bit the way I see the drug question in response to Steve. Uh, uh, where, where, where do you stand about where your, your former boss is on this, Vicente Fox, about legalization of drugs? Well, he's become a big advocate first of marijuana legalization and increasingly of all drugs. And I tend to agree with him completely. When we were, when I worked for him, when he was president and I was in office, it was very difficult, of course, for a president now 20 years ago to have that kind of view. But increasingly, it's, uh, it's becoming more acceptable. Canada, as you know, has legalized marijuana. Uh, several European countries did, be, did that before so. Uh, Uruguay in Latin America has done that, and an enormous amount of American states have legalized marijuana for recreational use. I think that we'll be seeing more and more of this in the United States and elsewhere in the world as the futility and the cost and the, blood, the bloody nature of the war on drugs becomes more evident uh, day by day as every day goes by. Uh, I think that we're moving in that direction. You can see it in Gallup polls in the United States. Gallup has been following uh, public opinion on marijuana legalization for 50 years now. It's up to near 70% in favor now, uh, which is really surprising for anything in the United States in such a polarized society today. And, and the other part of that chapter where you're talking about pragmatism as well as hypocrisy is immigration. And we hear from Alana who wants to really have you uh, really dive into Mexican immigration past and current and how it has affected the U.S. labor market. Well, you know, I, I also put it under the label of hypocrisy and pragmatism. And I use the example of a thing called the Texas Proviso. Uh, which was uh, a provision in immigration law that was passed in the 1950s and that was in force until the uh, mid to late 80s in the United States, which said that um, <clears throat> it was illegal for someone who was in the United States without papers, without proper papers, to work. In other words, if you were not uh, a U.S. citizen or you did not have a work working visa, it was a crime to work in the United States. But because the Texans wanted uh, Mexican labor to pick their crops, to harvest their crops, etc., but it was not a crime for a Texan or American uh, employer to hire illegal 
quote unquote, labor. It was illegal to be a laborer without papers. It was not illegal to be an employer of a laborer without papers. That sounds about as pragmatic and as hypocritical as it can get. And I use that example, which dates back a while ago, but it's not totally, doesn't contradict totally what we're seeing even today, when on the one hand, the Trump administration has been nastier, meaner, harsher on immigration than any administration in memory, at least since the late Truman or early Eisenhower administrations and Operation Wetback back in 52, 53. But on the other hand, in fact, people continue to enter the United States to work, even in growing numbers with working visas, H-2As and H-2Bs. With the exception of the last year, even the Trump administration has, uh, uh, <clears throat> has issued more H-2A agricultural visas and H-2B other services, temporary worker visas for mainly Mexicans than any other administration, hundreds of thousands. The numbers continue to grow. So even there, we see a little bit of both pragmatism and hypocrisy. Is there a shortage of labor, though? Because I recently was talking to someone in the construction business, and they said there was a shortage in part because we were not getting enough uh, uh, people coming from Mexico or other uh, uh, Latin countries. Well, there is a shortage of labor, certainly in agriculture, which is why, as I say, even the Trump administration continues to issue growing numbers of H-2A visas for agricultural work. But there probably is a shortage of labor in construction, in uh, landscaping, in health care, in child care, and in many other uh, hospitality industries in general, because Americans apparently do not want to do those jobs at the wages, of course, that Americans pay Mexicans or Guatemalans to carry out those jobs. There's a big issue there, and I, I also use my students as a focus group in the book and in life in general. I ask them, would you guys like to work at a restaurant in New York in the summer for uh, five to six dollars an hour, maybe plus tips as a busboy? And they all say, hell no. And then I say, well, how about for $15 an hour? And they start wondering, and hey, how about $25 an hour? Hell yes. Yeah, but then I tell them, hold on a second. Uh, if the busboy is making $25 an hour, how much is the waiter going to make? How much is the chef going to make? How much is the maitre d' going to make? How much is the hostess going to make? Because you can't pay them the same thing. And how much is dinner going to cost then? And then they say, yeah, well, yeah, probably we don't want to do that. Uh, I think that's where we stand today. I mean, there is a shortage of labor in the United States, not during the pandemic, obviously, we're referring to, let's say, a year ago, uh, at those wage levels. Then there's the issue that I talk about on immigration of uh, the slaughterhouses, or rather the meatpacking plants in Iowa in particular, uh, where um, even at higher wages, it seems that Americans don't want that kind of job. Whereas Mexicans and Laotians, for some reason, 
do. And so the meatpacking plants in parts of Iowa are full of Mexican and Laotian laborers. The Laotians are authorized. Many of the Mexicans are, but some of the Mexicans are not. But they accept to do that kind of a job at relatively low wages because by Mexican standards, those wages are very high. But that won't always be the case. Well, hopefully one day, uh, Mexican wages will rise sufficiently so that the differential with the U.S. is much smaller and it no longer becomes worth its while for a Mexican to try and sneak across the border and you know, work under very adverse conditions in a meatpacking plant or in a restaurant or in a field in California or in a construction site in New York, wherever, uh, won't have to do that anymore because the wage differential will have shrunk. But that hasn't happened. 25 years now or 26 years of NAFTA, for example, didn't bring that. And we're probably further from shrinking the wage differential than we were a quarter of a century ago. I'm not surprised that, again, that term welfare state has uh, uh, brought about a lot of questions. And Good. so Stephen Robb says, considering the size of the U.S. population compared to some of the countries you mentioned with more desirable public benefits, how do we pay for this? Well, uh, one of the points I go into, uh, uh, not as a specialist, but as you know, someone who understands these things without being an authority, much less so, is the U.S. tax system. And I try and examine, using American sources, U.S. scholars as sources, how the United States has a much lower tax burden, a much lower tax take than the Western Europeans, than Canada, even than Japan, though with Japan it's about even, and other countries. Well, how do you pay for it? you pay for it basically with higher taxes. On who? Well, certainly to start with on the wealthier. And if you look at what the United States tax situation was back in the 70s, 60s, and 50s, it was not that unsimilar to Western Europe. The big change begins with Reagan. Americans were paying higher taxes. They are paying much lower taxes today than they were. But what that shows you is that given benefits, given a series of advantages, Americans were perfectly willing to pay higher taxes when they got greater benefits. How do you pay for this? You pay for it with taxes. Yes. What kind of taxes? All sorts of taxes, but preferably progressive taxes, those concentrated on the wealthier. Uh, that's the way the United States used to do it, and that's the way everyone in Western Europe does it. And I think you can see, perhaps today, more Americans see the advantages of this type of arrangement thanks to the pandemic. Because there is no question, there is absolutely no discussion about the fact that the United States has been hit harder by the pandemic than practically any country in Western Europe, whether it's in terms of contagions or in terms of, uh, uh, of, of deaths. There, there simply is no comparison. And that's due to the, as you would say, the weakness of the safety net, the diminution. Of the safety net in particular of the healthcare systems, but not only the healthcare system, a series of things, but centrally, of course, the healthcare system. The number of, of deaths in the United States in relation to population is much higher, for example, in West, West Germany, which is smaller than the United States, but it's not a small country. It's upward of 80 million people. So Tarek asks you to define in your words, socialism. And is that what you're advocating for the United States? 
Well, I, I prefer the term the social democracy. Uh, I think it's a term which has been used in everywhere in the world since, I guess, the 1920s, since the 1917 Russian Revolution, uh, in, in contrast to or in opposition to socialism or communism, which is what existed in the Soviet Union, in Eastern Europe, in China, in Cuba for many years. Uh, I prefer the term social democracy. It's the one the Europeans prefer to use. Uh, they refer to themselves as social democratic parties, social democratic governments, social democratic activists. Some of them use the word socialist in some countries, I think, uh, not in Germany or Sweden. The French Socialist Party calls itself socialist, but the Germans call themselves social democratic, etc. I prefer that term. And what I refer to is pretty much what you have in, uh, in Western Europe, but also what you have in Canada. The Canadians don't use the term, but the, the, the Canadian Liberal Party and the Canadian NDP, the New Democratic Party, which has never governed, but has been in different provincial governments for many years, uh, pretty much has a system similar to the European one. It's not that different. And that's just across the border. Uh, it's not you know, the other side of the ocean. It's the other side of Niagara Falls. I suspect when you started this book some five years ago, you didn't realize that race was going to be such a key issue. Uh, and you really do a fascinating job of discussing some of the challenges that we continue to face. Why is it that the United States, albeit not the only country to have been involved with slavery, seems to be so unable to get over this hump and not have any form of reconciliation? Well, I agree with you completely, Jim. When I started writing this book and thinking about it, I had no idea that I would uh, uh, emphasize the issue of race as much as I try to do, nor that I would um, uh, conclude that it continues to be such an incredibly important issue, probably the central issue. Uh, I read through uh, practically all of Gunnar Myrdal's uh, An American Dilemma, which was published at the request of the Rockefeller Foundation. Myrdal was a Swedish economist. Many consider him to be one of the founders of the Swedish welfare state, particularly. And uh, he was commissioned by the Rockefeller Foundation in the 1940s to write this enormous two-volume work on race in the United States called An American Dilemma. Uh, and, you know, this is now 80 years old. Uh, and when you read it, you say, well, things have to have changed. And then you read contemporary authors, mainly African-American, Henry Louis Gates, uh, uh, Coates, but others, and you see that uh, they're kind of saying pretty much what Myrdal said 80 years ago. Uh, a foreigner who, you know, had no... Uh, <clears throat> Uh, real uh, vested interest one way or the other. He was just trying to be as an objective and observer as possible. And I you know, concluded like so many others have and following mainly American authors that the race question is more important probably than ever today in the United States. Uh, perhaps it's the passage of time. In other words, we had the enormously important reforms of the 1960s uh, Civil Rights Act, Voting Rights Act, in a way, uh, 
Medicare and Medicaid because by definition they help the poorer people of the country who happened to be African Americans at least back then. Uh, and now 60 years later, the gaps between uh, African Americans and whites continue to be almost as large as they were then. The overall level is much higher, of course, but the gap continues to be pretty much the same, whether it's income, whether it's wealth, whether it's education, whether it's opportunity, whether it's health. We see it with the pandemic, Jim. It has disproportionately affected African-Americans and Latinos. So Elizabeth Warren, Cory Booker, among others, have been calling for reparations. And you touch on that, but you define reparations in a broader way than perhaps I had thought of it. Uh, explain to us what you mean by, by that and what, what might be a way uh, for us to find an acceptable form of reparation. Well, I, I quote uh, Coates' famous article from The Atlantic, uh, The Case for Reparations, extensively. And it was a very, uh, I mean, it really moved me and, and convinced me of many things. And I also saw how many candidates in the Democratic primaries, Cory Booker among them, but others also uh, came out at least um, nominally uh, for reparations for slavery. Now, there's a huge discussion about that. I try to go into it very superficially uh, because I'm certainly not a, a, an expert on it. But the sense that you have to do something to overcome this, what everyone calls this original sin of slavery, uh, I think is increasingly uh, self-evident. You're, you're not going to fix it just by the passage of time or some uh, specific policies which you always are uh, having to water down affirmative action in education, uh, um, housing, um, health. Et and you highlight uh, William Darity, and I want to read his book or article where he talks about a portfolio of reparations. Well, including, for example, funds, uh, a fund for children, which would be set up from the moment the child is born, in this case, an African American child, uh, and that eventually would become an initial capital or asset that that child would be able to use as a down payment on a home when he's, he or she is 25 or 30, whenever, when they want to have a home, when they get married, whatever. Um, I, I think that that case is a very intelligent one. Uh, I think that in general, the idea of reparation as fixing something that needs to be fixed and will not be fixed by itself, I think that is a very powerful idea. Now, the specifics of it, the numbers, uh, the cost, the eligibility, the way you do that, all of that, I'm sure, has to be fleshed out, has to be talked about, has to be debated, and there will never be a, an outcome which will be perfect or you know, acceptable to everybody. That's not going to happen. But that something along those lines has to be done. I am increasingly convinced, and I wasn't. But when I started reading all these things and studying it, I, you, I, I don't think you can read a little bit about all of this and not end up concluding that something like that has to be done. I have to agree with you because when I read your chapter on this, and as I said, it made me want to read a lot more to, to, to get, get a, a better understanding of, of, the, of the options. 
Not surprisingly, we still have questions popping up about healthcare, and we have one from Dave Meyer. Having healthcare for all seems like a great idea. However, some commentators and politicians advocate for the elimination of private insurance and healthcare arrangements moving to a single payer. Why shouldn't someone have the ability to purchase additional healthcare if they chose to do so? And I think you agree with that. I, I agree completely. I think given the American system, uh, it would not make a whole lot of sense to take away uh, the insurance that people have because the health insurance that they have is the result of a long history of struggle by unions, by activists, by women, by everybody. It's not, it was not given, it's not a God-given right. Uh, this is something that people obtained through struggle, through strikes, through activism, etc. And so it makes, I don't think that makes any sense to lose it or to do, to do away with it. But there are two issues which are very important. The first is, or three, the first is there's still a lot of people without it. Uh, Obama probably did uh, insured half of the uninsured. Well, there's still a half left over. But then there's the poorly insured, those who have private insurance nominally. But that, you know, private insurance is lousy. It's got high deductibles. Uh, it's got all sorts of things that are not covered or that are covered only partially. Uh, it has ex exclusions of all sorts. So, you know, it, not everybody has a Cadillac insurance. A lot of people have Volkswagens. Uh, they are insured or they have a car, but it's not the same thing to have a Volkswagen or a Cadillac. I prefer Volkswagens, by the way, but that's a different issue. Uh, so, you know, I, I think that the question here is not to do away with what exists, but to build on it and to ensure that at some point in a very near future, every American has real, appropriate, proper health care. Not just nominally, but the, the, the real McCoy, as they used to say uh, a few years back. And I want to just suggest to Mr. Meyer, if he's not seen the, our program on which country has the best health care, we, we recorded this, I guess, about two or three weeks ago with Ezekiel Emanuel, who was yeah. one of President Obama's key advisors. And in his book, nearly every country has a way to supplement uh, the single payer or whatever, uh, with private insurance, whether it's Canada, the UK, France, almost every country does offer that option. So I have to say, as a graduate of the University of Virginia, I was pleased that you mentioned the University of Virginia as one of the top 30 schools in the country. I think you were way too harsh, however, on American education system, where you said you basically have the Ivy League and a few state schools, Texas, you mentioned, uh, Virginia. But isn't the fact that we have so many state universities and so many good liberal arts colleges, something that is unique to our country. And I, I just felt that you were, uh, as I said, perhaps too tough and not recognizing the strength of our higher schools of higher education. Well, I, I, I may have, Jim, and uh, I, I would certainly, you know, uh, try to, to address the issue if I was. Um, my sense is though that um, there is there's a fundamental problem involved here. The American system as such, I say in the book, I prefer to the European system in the sense that you do not have to make a life uh, uh, 
decisive decision at the age of 18 about what you're going to do in life. You have two or three, maybe even four years more, if you have a typical liberal arts education, uh, before you have to decide whether you're going to be a doctor or an engineer or a businessman or a lawyer or whatever. In Europe and in Mexico, by the way, you have to decide all of that when you're 18. In Mexico and in France, you enter what they, the Americans would call the history department or the medical department, Americans would say medical school, at 18. Well, at 18, most people don't know what the hell they want to do in life. And if they think they do know, they're almost certainly wrong. And I experienced this personally with my daughter. I mean, it's not something I read about. I experienced it uh, in Mexico with her. So what that part I admire and I prefer. The part that I think is very, um, I would say, deceiving about American higher education is the community college system, which on occasion is counted as higher education, even if it's an only a two-year degree. Two-year degree, which by the way, most people in community colleges don't get in two years. They get them in three or four years because they're working. And, and that's something I didn't realize until I read your book, that so many people are not graduating with this two-year degree, or it's taking them three, five years to get it. Well, the, you know, the, the numbers are there, and also the quality of that education inevitably is not what an Ivy League school is, but not even the great state schools, California, Texas, Virginia, Wisconsin, Michigan, it's, you know, it's not just the very rich states, a lot of states have them, but that's not the case for the community colleges. And so there's a little bit, I think, of a deception there, a deception in the sense of Americans deceiving themselves, that you can refer to these community colleges, which in many cases are, you know, 30, 40% of higher education registrations, uh, as higher education. I'm not sure the rate of return on a community college is that high. I didn't go into it in detail, but if you spend two or three years there, are you going to make more money when you go to the work labor market than if you didn't go and started right out of high school? Probably not. The rate of return is not much higher. And I think that there is an enormous weakness of American higher education. And also if you go down the line, high school, middle school, elementary school, I think you'll also find uh, difficulties which show up in all of the international statistics. And now you're seeing this situation where a company like Google is allowing people to get a certain certificate and they won't even um, suggest or recommend that they have even a community college or, or a, a college degree. So an, one area though where the United States continues to shine and you believe it will continue, that's in business. What gives the United States this inherent strength? Well, what, what I try to point out, following many, many American scholars, uh, Jim, there, I pretend uh, no, no, no originality here, is that the United States has had, Americans have had, uh, I don't know, since the early 19th century, this incredible capacity of taking uh, inventiveness, innovation, technical advances, scientific advances, and transforming them into money-making ventures. 
I wouldn't say something stupid like anybody can make a car or anybody can send a missile into space, but uh, it's much more difficult to make a car and make money making cars or make money sending missiles into space or make money on anything else, whether it's pizzas or whatever you want. In other words, the United States, Americans have this incredible capacity of not just entrepreneurship, it's more than that. It's the invention, it's the creativity, it's the innovation and the transformation into a product or a service that you can then merchandise, monetize, and that people buy and use and uh, enjoy and need. And this is true with Google today or with Apple today, the same way it was with the telephone uh, in the 1880s uh, and with the Model T in the early 1910s, etc. This is ongoing, ongoing, ongoing. And I don't see any other country that can do this today. No, we don't need to be so worried about China. Well, I'm not a declinist. Uh, I go a little bit into the China dilemma or the China challenge, not uh, in depth, but I go a little bit into that. And my sense is that the United States is still very, very far ahead of China, not even in like purely economic terms, obviously in military terms, uh, in many of those aspects, but perhaps most importantly uh, um, in, the, in what Joe Nye began calling uh, soft power now uh, 40 years ago, and which perhaps some, some of the French authors I quote uh, refer to as American civilization. Um, English, uh, genes, Hollywood, culture, technology, Apple, whatever. Apple makes most of its phones, its iPhones in China but nobody considers it to be a Chinese product. It's an American invention and an American product. And it's part of Americana, if you want. And this is true across the board. Uh, it will be many, many decades before China has the impact on the world that the United States has today and has had over the past, I don't, at least since World War II and probably since just after World War I. I do want to ask you about American civilization, but first, uh, Paula uh, wrote, many people use the community college system as a stepstone to four-year colleges. I, I think we all recognize that. Dion uh, Termini asks, though, what are your views about the quality of elementary education, um, which seems to be such a, now a, a growing major issue in the United States? Well, uh, my, my impression from PISA test, this is the international uh, education standard testing done uh, in, in, uh, together with the OECD that the United States and um, all rich countries are members of and some less rich countries like Mexico, Chile, etc. are members of. These test scores that are taken all over uh, the world, mostly at age 15, which means at the end of middle school, I guess, but uh, some of them are taken at 12. Uh, after, just after the end of elementary school, the United States does not score well. It scores poorly. It scores poorly uh, across the board in reading, in math, in comprehension. It, it, it scores near the bottom of the 30 or 40 countries 
where the tests take place. And these are relatively uniform tests. Of course, there are specialists in all countries who will say, yes, but the United States uh, has a series of disadvantages, which may be true because the tests by definition are homogeneous. The United States is a much more diverse society, let's say, than Germany or Sweden or even Spain. Uh, uh, <clears throat> but still, uh, you know, the, the United States does not rank well. And given its wealth and given the incredible advance it had in the 19th and early 20th century in, in primary education or elementary school education, this is really astonishing. The United States had universal elementary school education uh, early in the 20th century, long before any country in Western Europe, let alone the rest of the world. Yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. And, and God only knows what's going to happen with the impact of the pandemic on our education. We've got just another minute or two, and I do want to ask you a question about U.S.-Mexican relations. There has certainly been a love-hate relationship between uh, AMRO, um, uh, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, and Donald Trump. But politics does make strange bedfellows. Why would, as you suggested in one of your articles or interviews, why would President Obrador prefer a Trump administration? Well, I'm not sure he would prefer it. I think he decided to bet on President Trump being reelected because he thinks that uh, he already knows better the devil you know. He already knows President Trump. They more or less get along. It's a way of speaking because President Trump has continued to be particularly uh, nasty, particularly hostile to Mexicans in general, to Mexican-Americans, to Latinos, to Mexicans without papers in the U.S., to Mexicans in Mexico. Uh, so in that sense, getting along is perhaps a, a bit of an exaggeration, but they do get along. He, Lopez Obrador, thinks that uh, he would rather deal with a President Trump who he knows than a President Biden who he doesn't really know, he's met him once, but who uh, is more, uh, sensitive to union, labor union concerns, environmental concerns, uh, human rights concerns, which are not part of his agenda. He doesn't like those things. Uh, and, uh, but mainly, I think he made the mistake of believing uh, early on that Trump would be reelected, that uh, the power of incumbency is such uh, that uh, no matter how, whatever the polls may say, or this or that, that he was going to be or is going to be reelected and better to get along with him and even for practical purposes endorse him. When President Lopez Obrador went to Washington a couple of months ago now, uh, the picture you just showed uh, in, in the middle of the presidential campaign for as far as, you know, for all practical purposes, uh, he endorsed uh, President Trump. He made a statement which was outrageous, but in my opinion, saying President Trump respects Mexicans and particularly Mexicans in the United States. Well, that's certainly not the impression most Mexicans in the United States have, that he respects them. He decided to endorse President Trump. I think it was a mistake, but I see the logic of it because at the end of the day, if Biden is elected, uh, Biden will have to get along with Mexico, will have to get along with Lopez Obrador, because the relationship with Mexico is so important to the United States that uh, any president has to deal with it as it is. Well, we'll find out when we know who the new president is. Before I let you go, grab a copy of your book and would you read, I, I, I want our viewers to get a sense of your optimism about the United States. 
So if you would just read a paragraph or so, and, and then we'll call it a day. And thanks so much for being with us. Well, I'll try and find that last paragraph because I think it, it shows what I, what I try to say. Will American civilization last as long as Rome, either the empire or civilization? Certainly not, if only for demographic reasons. But it has a long way to go still, especially, especially if it shows Rome's adaptability and understands what American civilization is and what it still lacks to consolidate it. A fulfilled modernity would perhaps be the best name for what is missing. The journey toward that modernity and full-fledged civilization is underway. It will be arduous, but ultimately successful. And I believe this more strongly than ever right now, despite the difficulties that the entire world is facing with the pandemic, and of course, that the United States is facing with it. Well, as I mentioned in the beginning, I think your book is an important contribution. And friends, we, we barely scratched the surface. I think you would enjoy the, the chapter as well on what you call the unforgivable guns, death penalty, uh, the rising incarceration of primary, primarily uh, minorities. So this is a book that I hope you'll enjoy as, as, as much as I did. Uh, let me once again thank Billingsley and company for being the sponsor of the Global Forum. And of course, the lawyers at Haynes and Boone for being the presenting sponsor today, along with Mercado, Mercado 369.